Mark chapter 14. Again, verse 32. And they went to a place, this is the disciples in Christ, they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, that is the three, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping. And their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Father, we ask your blessing on the preaching of your word that you give us ears to hear and you glorify yourself now and edify, build up the church. In Jesus we pray, amen. Man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now that, of course, is a direct quote from Isaiah 53, about Jesus, about the coming Messiah, that he would be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And here in our text, we see Jesus fulfilling that prophecy in a garden called Gethsemane, a place that he and his disciples frequented, a place chosen for his arrest. And his disciples are with him, and he tells them, you sit here while I go pray. But he does something very interesting. He takes three of the disciples with him, when he goes to pray, specifically Peter, James, and John. Now, he's done this before, if you've been paying attention. Um, if you're reading the New Testament at the Transfiguration, he took James and John, uh, John and Peter with him to that amazing event. Most likely, he does this um, because not too many chapters back, you might remember that James and John, and apparently their mother, had come to Jesus and requested that when Jesus' kingdom finally comes, they wanted a special place in it. They wanted to be treated better and have a high place of authority. And you might remember that Jesus said to them, or he asked them a question, well, now, can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism I'm about to be baptized with? And, of course, he was talking about where we are now, this cup of bitterness, this cup of wrath, this cup of death. And this baptism into death for sinners. And he even said to them, yeah, you will be able to be baptized this way and drink this cup. Because, of course, they all died for the faith later. And then just a chapter back, last week, we looked at Peter, who was, as he had been in the past, very adamant that everybody might deny Jesus, but he wouldn't. 
And so most likely, Jesus brings these three with him because they're the ones most out front claiming, boasting what they can do in their flesh. And he's going to maybe give them an opportunity, as he says, to be watchful that you don't fall to temptation. But of course, he's going to prove to them at the same point that all they can do is fall to temptation. That the only thing their flesh allows them to do is to fail. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This idea of three or this number three is very important, obviously, in Scripture. So I don't really know everything that's going on here. And I'm sure there are a lot of uh, opinions been written about it. But the number three, of course, represents God, who is the triune God. Number three represents wholeness, communication, harmony. So we see Jesus in harmony with the Father and praying in communication with him. But perhaps he's trying to make these three aware that you and the whole group are not in communication with God. You're not in harmony with God. In fact, you remember Jesus told Peter that he was acting like the devil by refusing to accept what Christ was saying. But anyway, Jesus, when he gets along with the three, he, the Bible says, became greatly distressed. I think it's what the ESV says. The King James uses the phrase, sorely amazed. And unless you look that up, you wouldn't know what that means. But basically, it means to be in great darkness of horror, to literally be struck with terror. In fact, he says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Jesus, our Messiah, is saying, because of what's coming, and he knows it's very near, he is so in horror and terror that he could die now. This is the man Jesus facing the reality of what is about to happen and what he's about to endure. So maybe on one hand, he takes the three with them to teach them a lesson. But perhaps also in his humanity, he takes them with him because these are the men that are close to him and he loves. And as a human, not that Jesus was wimpy, but as a human, these kind of trials we don't like to face alone. The reality and the horror of facing the wrath of the Almighty to drink that cup that he, in the way he described it. And no doubt he had seen people crucified. He knew the stripes that he was about to endure. He knew the zeal of the Father against sin. He knew the righteous hate that his Father had towards sin, and yet he's about to become sin. So no doubt it's correct when he says, when the Bible says he was sorely amazed, he was in terror in his soul, even unto death. I think it would do us well to pay attention at this point and be reminded of what our sin does, did to our Savior. It brought horror to him, dark horror and sorrow. He had never disobeyed the Father or transgressed his law or sinned against him, yet the Father was about to lay on him the iniquity of us all. So in his humanity and in his flesh, 
he is overcome with horror and fear because of what was soon to take place. And though we shouldn't just be in constant sorrow and woe is me kind of attitude because of our sin, because it has been paid. We ought to rejoice in that. We ought to at least be mindful and never forget that our sin, even the tiniest of it, brought Jesus to sweat drops of blood as he prayed to his father. That's what Luke describes for us in this scene. As Jesus was praying, he began to sweat blood. It was such a tense moment. And I just think it does us well to be reminded that our sin did this to our Savior. Now, glory to the Father that our sin has been washed away. And again, we shouldn't mope around about what we did. We ought to rejoice in what he has done for us. But perhaps one or some of you have never had faith in Christ to save you. I want you to hear this. That this is what Jesus took for sin. For your sin, if you'll believe this. He sweat drops of blood that your sin might be forgiven. He was so horrified at what was about to take place, yet he still did it. He still purchased you. Paid for your sin. Even your thought life. Even the things that you wanted to do but didn't that were sinful. The things you should have done but didn't. He paid for all that. And especially note this. He prays, if possible, Abba, Father, can this hour pass? In other words, since all things are possible for you, Father, remove this cup from me. To me, this is an amazing thing that Jesus, the Messiah, the one who came for this purpose, is praying to the Father this prayer. But of course, he ends it, yet not what I will but what you will. And I want you to note this, and you've probably perhaps thought about this before. Had there been any other way for your sin to be forgiven, it would have been noted here. If there was any other way for sinners to get to God, it would have been put in the passage here. When Jesus prays to the Father, if there's any other way, if this cup can pass from me, if I don't have to be a sufferer, suffering servant, if I don't have to be led to the slaughter as a lamb silently, if I don't have to take the stripes of sinners, if I don't have to shed my blood, if I do not have to have this sin of the entire redeemed people of God laid upon me, then, Father, make that possible. If it had been possible, if any other religion other than historic biblical Christianity would save sinners... It would have been noted here. There is nothing else, no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved except Jesus in his sacrifice. So don't ever listen or be fooled when somebody suggests that there's some other way to God. I'm telling you, it's by grace through faith alone because of this instance in the garden. You think the father would not have rescued the son if there had been another way? Don't you dare think that you'll get to God any way other than through Christ. If there was another way, the Father would have answered the Son 
Yes, I'll take this cup from you. We'll do it another way. If it would have been a little bit of, yeah, I'll just let you suffer halfway, and then we'll let man pay for the other half. Or even I'll let you suffer 75% and man can do 25. No. It was all or nothing. Christ had to drink the cup and be baptized, which gives you the picture, drinking the cup all the way to the dregs, the very bottom, there was nothing left, being baptized, totally submersed, dunked completely into everything that he had to suffer. There is no other way. There's nothing you can do. Man never plays a part in it. We have to stop will worshiping and realize that there's only one way to God and it's through Jesus Christ. And God awakens sinners, brings them to himself, saves them, redeems them. If you're planning on any other way, there is no other way. You will die in your sin and go to hell for all eternity if you don't trust Christ. So you need to hear that. There's no other way. This is the only way. And that's the answer he received. And praise be to God that this is the answer. This is the plan. Jesus would drink the cup. He would endure the wrath. And he would despise the shame. And so he does. And they come and they arrest him. But before that, the three, they fail to stay awake. They fail to be alert. All their big plans fail within their flesh. Before they even actually happen. Peter hasn't failed and denied Christ three times yet. He's about to. And it's interesting, three times Jesus comes back to Peter. He's just told him, hey, three times you're going to deny me before the rooster crows twice. Three times Jesus comes to him and says, wake up. Hey, don't go to sleep. And, that, and, and what he's meaning is not necessarily physically asleep. Just like in the previous passage, stay awake, Jesus said three times. You want to know how to prepare for the end times? Stay awake, which means be alert, be vigilant, be ready. Don't fail to temptation. Don't fall to temptation. Three times Jesus comes are you still asleep? Wake up. Stop. Wake up. Can you not stay awake with me? And they all fail in their flesh. That's, that's the passage. That's the explanation of the text. Hear what God is saying to us. Church, we ought to rejoice at this scene. It is a sad scene. It is a heavy scene. We realize that this is the God-man. This is the flesh, the word of God that become flesh, pleading with the Father in great horror of what's about to come. Yet he's willing, as always, to surrender to the will of the Father to do what has to be done. And that's what he's done for you. That's what he's done for all who will believe in him by faith. So if that's you... And you are the church, rejoice. Because Christ went and did everything that was supposed to be done. There's nothing left for us to do. And if you don't trust Christ, hear that as well. There's nothing for you to do. But if you can hear that and you say, I believe that Christ died for me, then you have been brought from death to life to believe that. Now follow him, be baptized. Do what he's commanded. And when you fail, continue to trust him. I want to finish by...
talking with you about a difficulty that is in this passage, and actually it's been in several passages, but I haven't addressed it till now. And that is trying to wrap our brains around the difficulties of the two natures of Christ. How do we reconcile this, that God is in the garden pleading with God to change the decree of God? Isn't that what it looks like? What in the world's going on here? And this has long been an issue. And often what has happened is men, as they often do, try to figure out this great mystery and what they do is develop a heresy. How do we explain perfect God and perfect man? How do we get a being that is 100% God and 100% man? Because that's who Jesus is. You may remember in the last chapter, Jesus is making all these prophecies. This is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. But then he gets to one point and says, even though I know all these things are going to happen, the final last, when God actually shows up, judgment day, nobody knows. Except the Father in heaven. I don't even know the answer to that. Well, that seems a little confusing, right? Why does he know all these things? But then there's one thing he doesn't know. He's able to predict his resurrection. He's able to predict... Peter's denial. He's even able to predict potentiality. For example, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is rebuking Bethsaida and Chorazin. And he says, if the miracles had occurred in you that were done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. Jesus knows what's going to happen in the future. He even knows what would have happened in the future if some things would have been different in the past. But yet he didn't know the exact date of the day of the Lord. And here he's pleading that his plight might be changed. How can these things be? How can he know the future and even future potential and yet not know some things? Has that ever crossed your mind? Have you ever read and just wondered that? Why does he know some things and not some things? You might be thinking, well, maybe he just chose to, and I've read this, and this is a heresy that has been hatched. Well, he knew it, but he wouldn't tell us because we couldn't handle it. So then Jesus is a liar. That's <laughs> not very good to have a Savior who's a liar or a deceiver. In 451 A.D., you, you know how the church used to form councils, and they would deal with heresy in these councils. The Council of Chalcedon, 451 A.D., they hit this and addressed this head on. And I'm just going to close real quick just to show you this because I think it's important that we at least mention it in a passage like this. There was a group in a teaching, and actually it was deemed heresy, called the Monophysite heresy. I know you've probably never heard of that and may never hear of it again after I'm done talking here in a few minutes. But it's what it sounds like. It begins with the word mono, which means one. And the rest of the word basically means nature. And so there was a group of people who decided, well, there's, Jesus only has one nature. A single nature. It was neither really fully divine or fully human. In fact, they taught, some of them taught that he was either a deified human or humanized divine nature does that make sense some people thought it was just this 
mixture of divine human or human divine and sometimes he could know stuff, sometimes he couldn't. But what we know to be true and what come out of this council was that we believe Christ, who is God, took on flesh. The word became flesh, right? And when he did, he never stopped being God. Neither did he absorb the human nature and not be man. And it's not a mixture. It's not 50-50 or 75-25. It's, it's none of that. It's a mystery. But a profound and important truth that we have to safeguard within Orthodox Christianity. We have to, or, we have to safeguard this. Because if not, it becomes a heresy. Much of what the Catholic Church and the mistakes that they make, even in the supper, in believing that Christ actually comes down and we're eating his body and drinking his blood and he's here with us bodily, comes from this heresy. So what we come to believe from this council of Chalcedon and still to this day, we have a triune God, right? Who's one God in three persons. We have a divine Savior who is one person with two natures. So you have a Trinity, one God, three persons. You have a Savior, Messiah, one person, two natures. If you were here on Wednesday nights when we talked through our confession about who Christ is, you heard this word, hypostatic union. That's what we're talking about. Again, just a big word that means within Christ there is two natures. There's a divine nature and a human nature. And so exactly what the Council of Chalcedon concluded was that Jesus is truly man and truly God, having two natures in one person. And they further concluded that these two natures are perfectly united in such a way that they are not mixed, confused, divided, or separated. I don't know if this is a lot, but maybe it'll just pique your interest and you'll look into it yourself. They also concluded that these two natures are perfectly united in such a way, as I mentioned, they're not mixed, confused, divided, or separated, which the Monophysites did. They sort of jumbled the natures together. And they would say, well, sometimes he's Jesus the God, sometimes he's Jesus the man. And sometimes they're, we don't really know which one. And that's why sometimes he knows things, sometimes he don't. If it's divine things that humans can't understand, then he just keeps it to himself. But the council continued and said, each nature retains its own attributes so that the Son of God is still eternal, omnipresent, omnipotent, infinite, etc. But Jesus the man is finite, contained, limited in knowledge, limited in power, and cannot be in more than one place at one time. Does that not just make sense? You can't read the scriptures and find anywhere Jesus was in two places at one time. Now there were times he disappeared sort of into thin air. He just seemed to be here not. But he was still where he was. The human Jesus can only be in one place at one time. And so where is he now? He's at the right hand of the Father where he will remain until he returns. That's where the body of Christ is. His spirit can be in, because his spirit is divine, it can be 
omnipresent. It can be everywhere at all times. It is here with us. It will be with us when we take communion. We're not literally eating Jesus' body because the body of Christ is not here. But physically, he is here with us, and he will bless us and pour his grace into us as we remember what he has done, and we take this time to celebrate it. This is very important for a lot of reasons to distinguish the two natures in this way because, one, it was not God who died on the cross, but Jesus, because God cannot die. And this has been another mistake that has come from this heresy. Is God dead? What happened? How did God die on the cross? He didn't. Jesus did. And so here it was Jesus the man who was pleading with his heavenly father to let this cup pass. He was in agony and sorrow and dark dread and horror as any man would be because he's 100% man. Now the spirit of the divine Christ had communicated with the human nature of Christ and so he did know things. The same way that Moses prophesied. The same way that David prophesied. Because the Spirit of God gave them wisdom and insight to be able to prophesy. So Jesus, the human, has wisdom and insight to prophesy. But when he says, I don't know this, it's because he don't know that. He's not lying. He's not being deceitful. And so here, when he's in the garden, this is not God reasoning with God to change the decree of God. This is the God-man pleading with the Father if there's any other way. And perhaps based on a prophecy in the Old Testament where the cup that Jerusalem was given and Israel was given. Was taken away at one point and it wasn't drank. Maybe the man Jesus was pleading about that prophecy that maybe this cup could pass there be another way but there is no other way this is the second Adam the one who did what the first Adam was supposed to do but could not this is Jesus who bodily rose from the grave and ascended bodily to the right hand of God and is still bodily on the throne as I mentioned until he comes back Divine, the divine nature of Christ can be everywhere at all times, but the human nature can only be where it is. And so I just point that out because a lot of people take this passage and say, see, this is just, this is very confusing. This doesn't make any sense. But it does make sense when you understand the nature of Christ. But the main thing is, even if all that's confusing, is to know what Jesus did here was he surrendered to the will of the Father completely. And he's about to surrender to their rest. And as he said, I'm about to be given into the hand of sinners. To do what the sinners were commissioned by God to do and ordained by God to do, to put him on the cross that he might die for the sins of his people. So we rejoice at that. It's a mystery, the nature of Christ, but it's a wonderful and glorious thing for us to understand. So I pray that God will help you to wrap your mind around that as you continue to grow and think through these things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that you bless the teaching, that you would um, build our knowledge of who you are and mostly strengthen our faith. 
that though there are some things that are divine mysteries that we cannot wrap our minds around because we are finite, we know that we can trust you that you do what's good and right. And we know that we can trust Christ because he took our place. He was able as a man to completely fulfill the law. He fulfilled the law as a man. He never transgressed the law as a man. So he could die on the cross for men that they might be redeemed because the first Adam failed at that. And so now, as head of the church, and head of the people of God, we have been redeemed because our Savior did what we could never do. So we put our faith and trust in him. Help us to believe more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.